can turn in your Bibles to page 2,499. <laughs> 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 uh, we're in the book of Colossians, and you're starting a new little section there, verse 20. The subject of, that uh, Paul is writing about now, after he has been talking about the Lord, is the ministry of reconciliation. That's a good ministry. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, for your toleration of us and the things that God has <clears throat> Makes it look like we haven't grown up. I do thank you for your care and for the ministry that you've given to us, which this morning we're looking at the subject of reconciliation. It's a powerful, powerful subject, and I'm so thankful for these great terms that you have given to us. The disciplines in life have vocabularies that they use to describe their discipline and how to relate to those things, and the, the, the church does too, as we study the scriptures. We understand that. And so I, I just pray that as we're looking at this particular subject of reconciliation, that you would be honored and that the word would be clear our hearts would be touched your spirit would be working and the lord jesus would be honored and glorified it is he that we want to hear from this morning it is he that we want to see and it is he is the one that we want to be honored and glorified we ask it in his name with thanksgiving amen reconciliation one of those major words talking about in the prayer that is found in the scripture that relates to some of the things that God has provided for us as believers and they describe the some of the the uh, provisions of the gospel um, John MacArthur in his commentary talks about five words that are used in the New Testament to describe the riches of salvation words like justification redemption forgiveness adoption and of course reconciliation he said something that i thought was worthy of note in commenting on those and he said uh, for example that in justification the sinner stands before god guilty and condemned but is declared by god to be righteous in the subject of redemption the sinner stands before god as a slave but because of what Christ has done, he has granted his freedom. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor. But his debt has been paid and forgotten. Ephesians 1, 7. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy. We're going to look at that. But it becomes... Through the gospel, the friend of Christ and God. And then adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger, but he has made a son. Those are good things, aren't they? Those are really powerful things. The idea of uh, reconciliation or reconcile, kataloso is, is the Greek word, and it means to change or to exchange in a relationship. 
It's used, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 11, to refer to a woman that's been reconciled to her husband. You know that you have cases of divorce sometimes where there's a lot of animosity and anger and fighting going back and forth. But to reconcile means you bring the two together. They are reconciled. They are brought together. They are made uh, friends, maybe, is a way of saying that hostility has been removed. In 2 Corinthians, the word is used several times in a very familiar passage where Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, talks about things that are from God who reconciled us to himself so that we as sinners have been reconciled to God through himself, through his own work. He has given to us then the ministry, which you could translate perhaps official service, religious service, is given to us that official ministry or service of reconciliation so that that um, we tell people that what God has done. God is in Christ uh, reconciling or bringing the world to himself, removing the barriers, the hostilities, and bringing the world to himself, and is not counting, isn't this good? Now, he's not counting our transgressions against them, but he has committed into our hands, literally, uh, the word or the proclamation of reconciliation. So we have a message. The world is, is hostile, but the Lord has undertaken to provide a sufficient sacrifice so that that hostility can be removed by those who he's called to do so. We are ambassadors then, according to the text, or official word is voice, official voice, or perhaps even used for almost an elder, an official overseer for Christ as God is pleading through us we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So you get an idea from that text there, the various passages that we are called to be ministers of and servants of God who has provided sufficient sacrifice and payment to bring us to God and we are to be part of that ministry to other people. We have a wonderful message, we have a wonderful calling. We were talking this morning uh, about the cost of discipleship. We we're talking about the uh, Lord um, asking us to put him first. We die to self and live to, for Christ. And I kept thinking over and over again, asking myself the question, is he worthy of the sacrifice of our own goals for his sake? I mean, he is absolutely almighty God. And he came down to this planet and he suffered and bled and died for us. And we didn't seek him, he sought us. And so if he asks us to do that, nothing I, that I can think of comes close to the greatness of that privilege. To be able to put everything on the line as a sacrifice for him. Good morning. How you doing? So we, we are ambassadors we are ministers if you will in behalf of christ to bring a word of reconciliation to people around us in our text colossians 1 20 the, the same basic word is used when we read through him he has reconciled all things to himself that word uh that's used in colossians and that we are looking at has a prefix 
prepositional prefix which intensifies the wording so that it doesn't just mean reconcile, but completely and totally and irreversibly reconciled us to God. So that this is a powerful statement that we're going to look at. And in the bulletin, you have an outline. And that outline is kind of the outline that we're going to be following this morning. Um, I got a little bit of that, the first word of the plan. I got that from John MacArthur in his commentary. I, I rely on John and Weiss and a few others. But we're going to be looking at the plan for reconciliation and then the provision and then the purpose and then the proof of reconciliation to try to understand that from this text, because this is the, the passage that we are looking at. And so let's look at the plan, verse 20 and 21. It says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, and we'll stop there because we're going to get into the next point in a few minutes. But here is kind of, I guess you could say, the ultimate plan of the display of reconciliation. And that is, he has undertaken in his mercy and grace to completely exchange or reconcile or bring us to himself. And uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because we are far off, we are estranged. We were talking about the cost of discipleship this morning in Pete's class, which by the way, Pete was a good class. I appreciate your teaching on that. And uh, the, the, uh, the cost of discipleship is why people turn away from the gospel because it's offensive. Because it's, it not only says that we are sinners, but it says that, that we need to stop just trying to live for self and to live for him. If anyone wants to come after me, then the knife's out, take up his cross, and follow him. That's what he says. That's, that's, uh, the, we're looking at that passage in John, the same thing, dying to self like a grain of wheat. And uh, he's asked us to do that. And I can't speak from a long line of experiences, but I can say that when that does happen, that's the joyous life. That's where the real joy is found, the dying to self. Um, Rick likes to tell what Elaine used to say, if you want to know what joy is, you spell it J for Jesus first, O for others second, and yourself Y for last, put yourself last, that'll give you real joy. It'll be for Jesus, and then others, and then yourself. Um, it may not be easy sometimes, because the old self, at least in my case, likes to come up and want, wants its little privileges and its little breaks and this little pet peeves, little, little favorite things. And, but living for Jesus, putting him first, other second, yourself last, is, is the pathway, the formula for real joy. And so here is this, this uh, picture here, this text, that we are looking at being completely connected, if you will, reconciled to God. We're living in a cursed world, and God has... Um, is undertaken to, and he is going to judge the world. And he's told men, for example, in Acts 17, where he's going to judge the world, he said God's commanded all men everywhere to repent. So there is a schedule of judgment that's headed our way. And we have the privilege and I think the responsibility to tell people that there is a merciful God that will forgive sin 
and he wants, he loves them, and he wants to restore all of mankind to a position of being accepted, to being sons and children of God. And so this process of what we were in light of what we can become is kind of, I guess, part of the good testimony of what the gospel can do. Ephesians says this. This is a lengthy reading. Let me read it to you. Just let the word of God speak to your heart as I read it. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul starts out writing to that church there in that, in that second chapter. And he says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, just by way of commentary, when you see in the scriptures, usually a phrase, the sons of disobedience or the sons of God or the sons of the wicked one, it's a way of describing people who are taking after following after somebody who they're imitating in a way. They're sons of this, they're sons of that. And uh, in this case, sons of disobedience means that we formerly lived in disobedience. We were children of a disobedient culture and a disobedient world. He's talking about the, the, the course of this world. It's the world that is rebelling in, against the Lord. And so he says, you are, you are one of those who are sons of disobedience, among whom Paul says, we also formally conducted ourselves in lust of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, here it is again, sons or children of wrath, God's wrath, because of what we were living like, even as the rest. It's hard sometimes to, to realize how angry the Lord, we can make the Lord in our casual, self-centered, egocentric life, that we're just thinking about ourselves and living for ourselves and, and waddling in our own self-pleasure and self-indulgence and not caring at all or not thinking at all, or if we have thoughts or reminders pushing them out of, the side, out of our sight about the request and the the mercy and the grace and the love of God who loves us and wants to, to turn us around and save us from ourselves. And so it's a, and save us from his wrath. And so it's a, it's a, it's a good thing to see the, this is what we were like. We were children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse four says, but God being, <laughs> this is a good verse. God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us. And that idea of raising us there and uh, seating us, that idea has to do with, he did it immediately. He's raised us immediately and he seated us immediately with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I'll stop the reading there in the text. That helps us to see what we were like in our lustful, self-centered, egocentric life. That's what we formerly were like. And that's why he's called, he's called us. He's intervened. He's done that. And that all of that is a picture 
of his work on our behalf. He says in verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds. Notice these words that Paul uses to describe what we were like as he's talking about God's plan for reconciliation. He says you were alienated. We get the word alien from that. We were alienated from him. Uh, we says to alienate or to estrange and it's the perfect participle passive in voice says Mr. Weiss and uh, the Colossians had been in their unsaved state entirely estranged from God and it was a permanent situation and within that situation there's really nothing they could do they were hopelessly enslaved to their condition and yet the Lord in his mercy and grace has reached down into what is a hopeless situation to speak to people in a hopeless condition of rebellion and self-indulgence to bring them to himself. That's a, that's a marvelous, marvelous part of the gospel that we sometimes don't think about. Um, I've, been, I've talked to people about their enslavement. I've talked to people about their enslavement to... Uh, different sins that they can be involved in physically and <clears throat> they don't realize that it doesn't take long to become a slave what the Bible say we are slaves to the one we obey and our heart our self-centered nature we want what we want we don't think of it as enslavement but that's what it is and it's hard to, to break those habits, if you will, of enslavement. It's really hard. And the old nature, the old flesh is, is, is enslaving, but God is merciful. And so we, if you have family or friends or people that you, you want to pray for, really ask the Lord to be merciful in their heart and life and really reach into their lives and change their heart because he's the one that can do it. Remember that Paul tells us, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, the power the power, the inherent power of God for the word of salvation or deliverance. The word of deliverance is the word of salvation or deliverance. The gospel is God's power for deliverance, and it will. It, it give your heart to the Lord that the gospel can come in and turn you around and set you free. It doesn't do it if what you're wanting to do is to be free so you can go and do your own thing. It's not, it's not, you're not going to treat the Lord of the gospel as a genie and rub the genie or stroke the genie and then get your way about something. But if you come to the Lord and you surrender to him, he, the gospel is the power of God for deliverance. So that's a good thing. So that's, that has to do with the alien. We are, he, he's, we were formerly alienated and we were enemies. You know what an enemy is, an adversary. It's those who are hostile to God. So it has the idea of hatred. We hate him. There were those that the scripture talks about the enemies of the cross. And uh, so, and we were both hostile, both in mind and deeds, which includes mental and emotional health. Remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus has come as light into the world, and men love the darkness rather than light. And the reason being is because we love our sin. Christ calls us to turn away from our sin, to, to forsake it. And we don't like to do that. We like our little sins and our little things like that which will send us to hell if we, if we don't, if the Lord doesn't enable us to, to leave those things and, and to embrace him. It's not that we are saved by works, but it is too that if we are saved, God will deliver us from those things and give us strength. It's really, really 
powerful. So that's the first thing. That's the plan, if you will. The second point is the provision, uh, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross, now he has reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. Um, Bible Peter tells us that uh, the, the sacrifice of the cross, the pouring out of Christ's life, the shedding of his blood, is that means where, whereby our sin is paid for. Peter says, um, you who were not redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold from your futile or empty conduct, which you inherited from your forefathers, but you are saved and cleansed by the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That, that picture is very graphic, and the use of the word lamb kind of reflects back, doesn't it, to the Old Testament usage. Many places you find the sacrifice of the lamb. And uh, if you go through the Old Testament and look at the, the, second, the shedding of the blood, the first place you really have the application of the blood is at the Passover, the first Passover, where the children of Israel go to sacrifice a lamb, and then put the blood on the doorpost and uh, in the form of a cross. And when the angel of death comes by and sees the blood, he will know that a death has taken place that he requested and that uh, he will pass over that house. And so it's a very important picture, the use of the shedding of blood, the shedding of life, and uh, applying that death to my sin so that the anger and wrath of God is appeased is a very important part of the sacrifice and a very important part of God's provisions for reconciliation. That's what we're looking at. Hebrews says, the bodies of animals whose blood is brought to the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. So let us go out to him outside the camp, which is a form of bearing his reproach. He didn't suffer inside. He was taken outside there in that lonely place and suffered outside. And we follow him. We are glad to bear his reproach. We are delighted to be associated with him. Um, this is something that the Lord has really been speaking to my heart about in the last two or three years. Is because uh, I, you know, you're going to. I'm going to stand before the Lord. I, I'm almost 80, so I don't know how long the Lord's going to get me. But uh, I know that when you get, at least with me, when you get older, you are aware of the fact that you're getting closer to the fact that you won't. You're not permanent. You're terminal. <clears throat> and I want to be ready. I want my life to be ready. And so I'm challenged over and over again to think about this. Is my life, uh, am I putting the Lord first? I have to think about that, particularly, and we're going to look at that in, in light of the parable of the sower, where you have um, a textual barometer there to help you evaluate the condition of your salvation, whether you're really saved or whether you're not, whether you're bearing fruit or whether you're not. And uh, so... And we'll get to that in just a minute. But what I'm saying is that this provision is something that's been on my mind. I've been aware over and over again of my life. And I, I want, I don't want to wake up one day and hear the Lord say, depart from me. I never knew you. Those are the words that are in the Sermon on the Mount. They're the most heart-rending and horrible words possible. And we don't have to hear those words. We can, the Lord has given us enough information and his spirit and his word is working 
to enable us to, to turn from our sin and do that, but it's a very serious contemplation, and I think it's something that, that I, I dwell on and think about frequently. So that's the, that it has the provision, the purpose. He does those things in order to bring us, to present us before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. To present you means that you're being presented uh, on display. Now, I, you know, think of uh, when we were kids at school, we used to do a play and, and we'd do different things and sometimes we'd come up. When I was a little kid, they made me wear lipstick when you go up on the stage. I, I, I hate that. But they did it because they could see your lips. It shows better and we'd go in and sing and stuff like that. And you would stand out there and stand in front of all these people. And I hated it. And I'm sure that they laughed. Well, everybody else but me. But that's <laughs> presenting people like that. Presenting that's what the Lord's going to do. He, his purpose is to present us before the throne of the universe, the holy throne of God. And there is no place more dangerous than that. You're safer standing three feet unprotected from the surface of the sun than you are standing unprotected before the holy throne of the universe. That's the most dangerous. And yet, we can stand there. He's working, as he says here in the text, to present us so that we can stand before him, accepted in the beloved. That is a massive, massive provision. Uh, and he goes on to use, he uses the word holy, which means we're separated from sin and separated unto God. Uh, Ephesians says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Me being blameless before God? <coughs> but that will happen because of his sacrifice, because of the success of his work. Not only that, but he uses the phrase beyond reproach, which, um, which includes the idea that once he does it, it cannot be reversed. It cannot be brought undone. You see what I'm saying? We do not have the capacity to go back and second guess what he has done in our lives. I can't even do it to myself. So this is, this is um, a marvelous reality that this kind of sacrifice, the purpose of this reconciliation is to do it, if he does it, in a way that it is stable and secure and sufficient, okay? That's a good thing. And then the last point here is the proof of reconciliation. He says in verse 23, um, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Notice there is kind of a, a warning here um, that, that we have, and that is that the proof of this reconciliation is if you continue in the faith, not because you have to continue in order to, to work your way in, but that's a proof of the fact that it's real. If you're real, I mean, who is it? Martin Luther said that we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that saves will not be alone. And that's a good point. We are justified by faith, but the faith that's real will have works. It will, it will bear fruit. And that's what he's saying here. Um, 
in, in Matthew 7, the verse that I mentioned earlier, where there will be people that are standing before the Lord on that day. And uh, I was listening to Sproul on this the other day, and he pointed out the use of the, the, the repetition of the word Lord, Lord, which goes, there are many places in Scripture, uh, Jesus called Simon, Simon, and uh, there are just many places where that is used. Uh, Abraham, Abraham, the angel said to Abraham, he was about to, but he uses the name twice. It's a term of great familiarity and uh, a term of uh, kind of affection. And these people here that are saying, Lord, Lord, or, or pretending to be people of great familiarity, they involved in religious works, your name, uh, in your name, we did prophesy and preach in your name. We who are involved in casting out demons, and in your name we're doing merely miracles. And they realize they're standing before the Lord for judgment, and they realize they shouldn't be there because they've done all these things, and they're saying, Lord, Lord, how can this be true? And the Lord says, I will turn to them, and I will say, I never knew you. Get away from me. Depart from me. I can't think of anything I would hate. And I've prayed this. I've said, Lord, please don't let that ever happen to me. There's no, I don't want that to be my case. I don't want to be to wake up one day and find that's the case. And we don't have to. We don't have to. If we know the Lord, if we've come to him, if we've invested in his word, that's how you get to know him. I've been thinking about that uh, Psalm 37, which says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And uh, I want that. I want the delight in him. I want uh, him to refashion my heart and my desires so that they desire what he wants rather than what I want because what I want is 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 destructive it's self-centered it's uh, fleshly it's of the world and so I want my desires and my heart to want what he wants and so we delight in him and we delight in him by being in his word by investing time uh, in studying him and learning of him um, he's so good he's so good I'm so I shouldn't say impressed but just overwhelmed by the abundance of mercy and grace that he's pouring out on our lives and he does it all the time we're talking about the surgery the, the, the thing the surgery on my arm there and they say skin cancer is nothing of course if it's cancer on you it's something but um you know we, we spend a lot of time looking at ourselves and looking at the doctors and stuff but i do pray for the, the doctors i do want to be a witness to them. I would like to have some kind of fruit there in that ministry there at the hospital. If I'm going to be there as a patient of the hospital, and uh, I've had I've had, uh, I've had, had two people come down there to work that uh, remember me as a patient there in the hospital. Uh, one of them uh, is the wife of one of the guys that works there, Orlando, he's from Cuba, and uh, she she is uh, an anesthetist there, and she, uh, the one that has to poke around inside with these long needles and stuff like that. And of course, you're, you're kind of numb and you can't feel it and stuff. But we talked for quite a while and she wanted to know how I was doing. I was doing fine and stuff. But this other person there, I didn't know them at all. They just came back and I said, I remember you from the hospital. And, and I said, oh, good, and stuff like that. And they, I'm sure I was probably, I don't know if I was coherent or not. But the point is, no, I mean, when I was in the hospital. But uh, I was obviously coherent there. Uh, it's time to quit, anyway. But you see what I'm saying? Is that um, I, I, you run into people and and uh, you you make an impression and you want that impression to, to point to Jesus, to the Lord. And uh, to be honest with you, most of my, I have a loud voice, and so it kind of talks, points to me. 
And I don't want it, I want it to point to the Savior and I want him to be honest. So when I have a funeral, I put my request in right now, don't talk about me, talk about Jesus. He's the one that's the worthy of all. And, and I'm not in, I'm, that's not some kind of subliminal thing that I think I'm hearing to die. I'm just saying that, that uh, we want the Lord to be honored in our life. I do. I want that to be the result of what he's doing in my life. So anyway, these, the proof of this is uh, that, that your life points to the Lord and that you don't have to, to frame something but that it will exalt him. He goes on in verse 23, he says, if you continue in the faith firmly grounded and steadfast, uh, and that, that is a real sign of, of genuine conversion. John talked about those that have left us and gave evidence they were not really of us. Uh, and yet we know, Paul tells us that, that uh, we're, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ. Nobody's going to do that if we belong to him. And uh, so uh, the parable of the sower, which is what I told you I would mention, is uh, that parable in which Jesus gave this textual, I call it a barometer. It's just a way of reading what's going on and then evaluating our salvation, the reality of it and the, the lack of it. And part of that uh, passage, reads in Luke chapter 8 verse 12 says in, uh, in the, the, the sower that went out to sow and he says and, and those seed that were sown beside the road are those who have heard the gospel and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved and so there are people that hear the gospel they hear that they maybe sing Christmas carols or whatever and, and they hear it but before you even think about it, there's too many other things going on and they just pass it over and walk away. There's other things more important. This is not a big issue. This is just something that's kind of clogging up the airways. They want to get that out of the way and get to something more important. But then secondly, he said, but those, uh, the, that, uh, those on the rock, are the, that is the, the seed that fell on the stony, thorny, stony soil, shallow soil, are those who, when they hear the word with joy, and these have no root in themselves. They believe for a while, but in time of temptation away, so that they fall away. So that the second one is the seed, the gospel is sown, and they receive it with joy, but their hearts are, are shallow. They don't have a lot of depth. There are rocks in there. And so while it begins to blossom and there's excitement, temptation or persecution or trial comes, and all of a sudden, this is enough of this. I didn't sign up for this. And they walk away. They, they go back and do something else. Then the third soil, which is the one I identify with most closely, is the seed which fell among thorns, a weedy soil. And these are the ones that you have heard, uh, who have heard the gospel, and they go on their way. But the, the fruit of that is beginning, beginning to be choked out with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of life. There it is, all the fun things. And they don't doesn't bear much fruit doesn't bear much fruit or one of the gospel I think Matthew says it doesn't bring much fruit to maturity and I can just see that you know I, I want my life to be mature I want to produce fruit that that is real fruit and long-lasting fruit and stuff and uh, so this is a serious to me okay it's a serious text and I think it should be to all of us because we want to know what our life is like we want our lives to to, to stand the scrutiny of an examination before the, the Lord himself. And so we want to do that. In, the, in John um, chapter 8, Jesus is saying to the Jews uh, who believed in him, if you abide in my word, 
then you are truly my disciples. John 15 talks about that. How can you bear fruit? Abide in me. That's what he says. So Jesus is the, the key, I think. And, and his, this is what I'm going to leave with you because this is, um, this is kind of the conclusion of this reconciliation is make sure that you spend time in the word every day with the Lord. Make that a priority. That's really more important than anything else you do. You do have to go to work. I know you have to take a shower and get dressed and and uh, pay your bills and other things and all those other things. But they flow out of this bottom line commitment, dedication, a source of strength in life that lies beneath the surface like an iceberg. You've got a little bit on top of you have this massive, you invest in that quiet, private time with the Lord every day. Spend a little time in the Word. You may not have a long time, but spend some time in the Word. Read it so that you can understand what's being said. And if you have a hard time reading it the next day, read the same chapter over and over again for a week. And the more you read it, the more it will read you. And the more it will work in your heart and your life. Yeah, Bible commentaries are always a help. They are. And the MacArthur is a good one. And so is um, David Jeremiah. His, his Bible is a good one too. And uh, they, are, they are very good. And another, another thing that I recommend very highly is the Grace to You app. If you get to gty.org, every day you can go on there and you get a 30-minute exposition of the Scriptures, which is very sound and well, well presented. And if you listen to that and you go over it, it won't take long before you'll be growing in the, in the Lord. It's really cool. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for... We've been kind of lighthearted this morning, I guess, with some of these things dealing with reconciliation and talking about how we respond to people. And I don't, you tell us to be transparent. I want to be transparent. I don't want to put on a false image. But I, the message is not about me. It's about you. And I pray that you will help us to look beyond the, the petty examples that we have in front of us to the Word and to the Savior. And that, Lord, you'll help us to really find him, serve him, live for him. You, you told us that no one can follow you who does not put you before wife, husband, wife, children, brothers, parents, and even our own life also. That is a, that's an impossible calling unless you enable us to do it. So as we read the scriptures, speak to our heart, open our hearts, I pray, make us children of God who loves the Savior and follow him, even as Peter did. To the very end, it is a privilege. We were asking, "Are you worthy of that?" That that really is not the question. Is are we worthy of you? And uh, I just thank you so much for your opening our eyes and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to be obedient to you and to love you and to follow you and to put you first. And I ask in Jesus' name, Amen.